Welcome to the Princeton Alumni Weekly's Q&A podcast. I'm Brett Tomlinson. This month, our guest is Sebastian Abbott, class of 1998, author of a new book called The Away Game, The Epic Search for Soccer's Next Superstars, which tells the story of a truly remarkable talent search in Africa, led by a prominent Spanish scout and funded by a wealthy backer in Qatar. Um, Sebastian has been an Associated Press reporter and bureau chief in, in Africa and the Middle East, and he has a soccer background as well. He played on Princeton's team. Sebastian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, your, your book covers this talent search that was known as uh, Football Dreams, uh, and, and it includes some elements similar to those in Hoop Dreams, the, the 1990s um, documentary film about aspiring uh, basketball players in Chicago. Uh, ha- how did you first come across this story, and, and what drew you in? Um, I, I first came upon the story uh, back in 2007 uh, when I was working as a correspondent for the AP in Cairo. Uh, and I actually used to go to this gym across the street uh, at a hotel to go work out, run on the treadmill, because if you've ever been to Cairo, you know that if you try and run on the streets on Cairo, you're going to get run over by a taxi. And so I was over there one day running on the treadmill and there were these TVs there uh, that I would watch old, you know, European football matches, soccer matches um, while I was running. And a commercial came on the TV that showed this sort of gleaming sports academy in Qatar. uh, And it had a kid juggling a soccer ball. And so I was kind of curious. So I went back and did a bit of Googling. And it just so happened that at this time, they had launched this massive soccer talent search called Football Dreams. And so I went to Doha uh, in January of 2008 when the first class of kids they found in Africa was there for their final tryout, spent a few days um, with the kids, wrote an article for the AP. And, uh, and it, it had basically always been one of my favorite articles I ever did for the AP. And even at that time, I thought this would be an amazing book. But wasn't really in a place to to do it at the time. So years later, when I was actually living in Pakistan and working as the bureau chief for the AP, I was, you know, kind of thinking about doing something different, ready for a new challenge and wondered if anybody had ever written a book about this football dreams program and did a bit more digging and, and realized nobody had. And so decided I would take a leap of faith and leave the AP and, uh, and write a book about it. And it's, a tremendous amount of reporting. You're you're going to some, in, in some cases, some very remote areas to to tell this story. Give give me a sense of what football means to the kids in Africa who who you came across in in, in writing this story. It really meant everything to them. You know, I spent uh, about five months in in West Africa doing research for the book. Um, in terms of, in, in addition to traveling kind of to Qatar and Europe and other places. Um, you know, in Africa, you know, for these kids, you know, soccer is clearly the most popular sport on the continent. You know, millions and millions of kids uh, grow up dreaming about becoming soccer stars. And, you know, for a lot of them, they, they view it as, as really the only way out. I mean, for American readers, you can kind of think about it as, you know, what basketball is for a lot of inner city kids in, in the U.S., you know, they, they kind of focus on it as sort of their one chance of, you know, 
achieving fame and fortune, finding a better life for themselves and their families. And so, you know, you travel across, especially West Africa, and kids are playing everywhere you go. I've seen kids playing under highway overpasses in Nigeria, seen them playing in cemeteries in Ghana. Um, I've seen them playing, you know, on the beach and uh, the Ivory Coast uh, using, you know, goals made out of palm trees. I mean, you just, you just see them everywhere because for them, this is their passion. They see this as their future and they spend as much time as they can playing. And on, on your website for the, for the book, uh, one of my favorite pictures is of a, a shop in Senegal where they uh, refurbish soccer cleats. And, and some of these cleats have been worn out to the point that you can barely tell it was ever a shoe. I mean, it's obviously uh, the, the amount of play and the amount of uh, just hard work they, these kids are putting in is, is, is obvious. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that shop there is also a testament to the lack of resources for the sport in Africa. Um, you know, the reason why the shoes looked like they did is because they're so valuable to the kids that they have them repaired over and over and over and over again because they can't afford new ones. And so, you know, a lot of the places you travel uh, in West Africa, you know, you see that the sport um, has very little resources in, in Africa in general. And, you know, that was actually one of the things that made this Spanish scout who launched the search, Joseph Colomero, help. He was previously the youth director at Barcelona and helped launch Lionel Messi's career. You know, one of the, the reasons he decided to do this search is because when he was at Barcelona, he was scouting in Africa. And one, he realized that, you know, the amount of undiscovered talent in Africa was very high. And two, the amount of resources there were for sort of talent identification and development were very low. And they, they don't have anything like the academy system that you have in Europe that develops top professional players. There are a few, but not very many. And so his idea was that if you went and conducted a blanket talent search, that one, you would find amazing kids. And then if you had sort of a world-class development program to put them into, then you could produce, you know, soccer's next superstars, the players who are going to make it to Barcelona and Chelsea and Manchester United and all the other big teams that come to mind. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book that the idea of Africa having this this tremendously promising pool of players is not new, that uh, Pele in the, the 1970s famously predicted that an African team would, would win the World Cup by 2000, and that has not happened, but there has been enormous growth in the number of African-born players in the the uh, European Pro Leagues. I, the Times, uh, New York Times had a, a piece... I think in late December, showing the makeup of uh, you know nas- national backgrounds of players in various leagues, and a uh, Premier League had something like nine percent of uh, players coming from Africa, which is which is very significant. Um, what was football dreams doing differently than say the European academies might have done in the, in its in their search for? Um, talented players in, in the African countries? Well, the thing is, is that European academies, um, you know, as much money as they have, um, you know, they they sort of pale to, in comparison to Qatar and the amount of resources that Qatar can bring to bear. And so the, you know, kind of the search that 
European academies or European teams um, make in Africa looking for players is much more piecemeal than what Qatar was trying to do with football dreams. You know, there's a couple reasons for that. One, it costs a huge amount of money to do what Qatar was trying to do in Africa. And two, there are rules about um, basically importing players into Europe from Africa and, and other places outside Europe. Officially, kids are supposed to be 18 years old uh, before they move, make the move from Africa to uh, academies in Europe. Although, you know, as we've seen with punishments that have been handed down by FIFA to Barcelona, um, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and then one that was just announced um, against Chelsea. This is a rule that has been widely broken in the past, and many say continues to be ignored, that kids much younger than 18 continue to make their way to Europe. And if you're a great, great player, there's no real impediment to making it to a European academy. But um, but even then, you know, Euro the European academies aren't going to Africa and doing sort of a blanket talent talk to some of the clubs in the major cities or go to the big international tournaments like the Africa Cup of Nations and look for promising players there. But what Qatar was trying to do was different. They were trying to do a real sort of blanket kind of grassroots talent search where, you know, they were just traveling to hundreds and hundreds of fields across the continent, you know, and watching millions of kids play on dirt fields. Um, and with the, sort of group of European scouts they had doing this search, you know, they would basically pick the best from all these countries and eventually through a series of tryouts bring uh, a group of about 50 every year to Doha for a final tryout, keep them there for a month, and then take the top 20 kids and put them in their academy. And so it was just uh, the scale of it. It was just like nothing the soccer world had ever seen. It, 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 in truth, like nothing the sports world had ever seen. You'd never had a, a country with the kind of resources that Qatar can bring to bear, sort of take on this kind of ambitious agenda before in soccer or really any other sport. And in your mind, what was the motivation? Was it the, the good of the game? Was it, was it driven by ego, the idea that you could find the next superstar? Was there, um, you know, hopefully, hope for some benefit to the Qatari national team program that was, you know, training alongside some of these players? Yeah, well, the, the backstory is that um, there's a guy named Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad al-Thani, who is, is one of Qatar's richest and most powerful men. Uh, he's a member of the royal family, the brother of the current emir of Qatar. And actually, Sheikh Jassim was in line for the throne himself. But um, people say he's a lot more passionate about soccer than he is politics. And so he actually gave up his right to the throne. Um, and his, so his father ultimately chose his brother. Um, and instead of pursuing a life of politics, of running the country, he decided to, to spend a billion dollars and build sort of one of the highest tech sports academies in the world in Doha called Aspire. And the reason he did that is because his dream had always been to produce a world-class cuttery national team. But Qatar is a really small country. It, uh, it only has about 300,000 citizens, about 2 million um, people living there overall, most of them migrant workers. Um, but he was, you know, had the money to spend and was bent on doing this. So he built this academy, hired the best coaches and scouts from Europe. And they started out basically by holding tryouts for every boy in Qatar. Uh, to see what kind of talent they had on their hands and quickly realized they didn't have enough 
young players to form a real world-class national team. And so they started scouting piecemeal in Africa and South America and bringing, looking for kids that they could bring to Aspire in Doha and, and on scholarship to, to train with the country players. Um, it, the stated reason for this was that uh, the kids would train with the Qataris and they would improve the level of training because they were s- such good players and that, that would make the Qatari players and the Qatari national team better. But Qatar also has a history of handing out passports to uh, foreign players, foreign athletes in all sorts of different sports uh, so that they take Qatari citizenship and compete in things like the Olympics and, and sports like sprinting and badminton and volleyball and handball, chess, you, you name it, they, they've probably done it. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, they had that kind of intention at the beginning. Um, but what happened along the way was that FIFA changed the rules and made it more difficult to naturalize young soccer players. So the shift of the program really changed to more of a, a prestige project that if they could find the world's next superstar, the next Messi, um, that it would reflect well on Qatar. Um, you know, people would say they had one of the best soccer development programs in the world. And it was just sort of, to be honest, a smaller, a small part of a larger strategy, which Qatar has carried out across sports, the arts, politics, where basically they've used this vast wealth they have to try to buy a place on the world stage. You know, they've, they've consistently tried to punch above their weight. And so this, this was one of the ways they were doing this, doing it in the soccer realm. You know, obviously, they also bid for the World Cup. They bought, uh, you know, famous European teams like Paris Saint-Germain. And so, you know, they were just trying to, to get the Qatar brand out there. Mm-hmm. Early in the book, you, you, you tell the story of these three remarkable 13-year-olds, uh, Bernard, uh, Diawandu, and Ibrahima, who are identified from a gigantic pool of, of kids as the best of the best, um, what sorts of pressures were they under after they'd been given this extraordinary opportunity in this, you know, Aspire Academy, this palatial soccer center? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest pressures was just for many of them, the desperation of their, you know, family members back home who, who were sort of relying on them and saw them as kind of, again, the ticket to a better life. And so, while they were at the academy and then, you know, ultimately after they became professionals, you know, there's constantly pressure from back home to send us money. Where's our money? We need help. Um, when are you going to make a lot of money? You know, that kind of thing. So it, it constantly weighed on their minds um, while they were at the academy and afterwards, knowing that they had so much riding on their shoulders that, you know, because they'd been picked out of millions as, you know, just exceptionally talented soccer players that everyone back home then assumed, okay, well, then these guys are going to become the next superstars. He's going to be the next Messi or Ronaldo, and he's going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars, and then that's going to help me. And so, you know, they they had to grapple with that. And then sort of something else that was related to that that was difficult for them is that in that soccer world, that youth soccer world, especially from for players from developing countries, in Africa and South America, there are a lot of sort of shady agents and coaches hanging around, trying to contact players, trying to, to form a relationship with players so that they can profit off what they see as, you know, a player's bright future. And so because 
these kids were knew they had pressure at home from family members who were desperate for for a better life that they were often susceptible to agents and coaches coming to them and promising them great things like look if you just leave the academy now I can help you get to a big club in Europe I can get you trials with Manchester United Barcelona and and sadly some of these kids you know took the wrong paths and and sort of fell by the wayside because they they trusted people they shouldn't have but you know the reason they did was understandable again because they were desperate to to kind of improve their own lives and the lives of their family yeah the the human story is 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 fascinating there's also kind of a a scientific element that that plays into your your book this idea of just how difficult it is to identify to quantify to you know to find greatness in soccer and and the european academy system has has not had a particularly impressive success rate and and has plenty of critics but but you you lay out some of the sports science aspects of scouting and and the intuitive ones as well as someone who knows the game pretty well can you tell me what surprised you in in terms of what the scouts uh, emphasized and and what they they don't emphasize? Yeah, I think to be honest, as as a player, this was one of the most interesting parts for me because I played my whole life, as you mentioned. I I played at Princeton, and um, but I'd never really read much into the science of what makes a great player until I started working on this book. And to be honest, you don't see a lot written about it. Um, you see it, it talked about in very general terms, but you don't see it written about in, in specific terms in a lot of places. And and what I found was that, you know, interestingly, at the youth level, you know, in terms of what science tells you you should or shouldn't uh, look for when you're trying to spot the next big star is that you should basically more or less ignore physical characteristics. Because if you start picking kids because they're the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the tallest, you're making a huge mistake because those physical characteristics at a young age are, are going to tell you very little about whether a kid has the chance to make it. Speed's probably the most important of those, but even it can't really tell you very much. And then you kind of move up the value chain of what is important. Now, technique is way more important than those physical characteristics, but even, you know, a, a very fast player with great technique, good acceleration, is still not going to tell you very much because the things that matter most are the things that are hardest to measure. One of the key ones is is vision or game intelligence, and that's the ability to sort of read the game uh, and make split second decisions um, based on what's happening around you in you know a very fast paced uh, dynamic situation. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of interesting research that's been done about, you know, what is game intelligence? What's going on in a player's brain that allows them to to make split-second decisions that others can't? Um, in fact, they interestingly enough, they, they found that the, the best thing you can do to form game intelligence is not sort of a official practice or games. It's pickup soccer, street soccer kind that you see kids playing in the developing world, places like Africa and South America, and that's why often those players are so good. Um, and then the other is personality. Personality is, is probably the most important, but it's also the hardest to 
kind of judge in any real kind of objective quantifiable way for me because i i would i play myself on the weekend still and you know you find yourself doing things on the field that you didn't really understand in the past how you were able to do those things but after reading it you understand why you're able to kind of look up and instantly know the right pass or the right dribble um, and it comes from these thousands of hours of, of playing that, that I've done in the past. And the other interesting thing was that, you know, scouts, uh, you know, at the highest levels, they, they can, they're conceptually aware of a lot of this. They don't know the science necessarily, but they'll know they're looking for smart players. They know they're looking for players with great determination and grit. And they know that they shouldn't necessarily be looking and picking the, the biggest, the fastest, the strongest players. But if you look at the data, what you find is that they often still do. They often still go out and pick the biggest kid or the strongest kid, and and that's a, a real mistake. And so, um, as you said, the, the success rate of academies in general and academies in Europe have not been great, and, and part of it is just, you know, it's so difficult to know which kid the right is the right kid, and part of it is if you're just picking kids on physical characteristics, you're going to get it wrong. But one of the statistics that really stood out in my mind was that um, at a Premier League academy, the percentage of kids that um, make it from sort of the youth level to the first team is a half a percent. And then if you look at the entire academy system in England, which has about 10,000 kids at any one time, the percentage of those kids that make a living in soccer at any level, not at the Premier League, but any level, is only 1%. So it's really long odds for the scouts to pick the right kids and then to pick a, a real superstar, you know, is even that much more difficult. I imagine we have some uh, fans of the U S men's national team listening and, 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 and kind of taking mental notes about the things that you mentioned, the, the pickup soccer and all that. Uh, it seems like, Youth soccer in the in the U.S. Uh, maybe doesn't doesn't understand the the pickup nature as much as the very structured uh, instruction. I don't, I don't yeah, know if there's anything the, to the learn. Yeah, yeah. The other problem you have in the U.S. Um, is that you know there's this sort of pay to play system in the U.S. where it's very expensive for kids to play you know on on the best teams in the U.S. when they're growing up, and so the problem is is that you may be you're one you're excluding a, a big population of kids who just can't afford to, to participate. So that limits your talent pool. And then because you're, you're doing that, you might be systematically excluding the best kids. Because again, if, if the best way to develop the kind of skills you need to succeed in soccer are through things like pickup soccer rather than formal practice and games, the kids who come from poorer backgrounds who maybe aren't playing as much you know, formal soccer but are playing a lot more pickup in the streets or the schoolyards or whatever, they may actually have the best potential, but if they can't afford to participate in sort of the formal soccer system in the U S they may be left out. Mm-hmm. Are you going to run for uh, the president, the next president of U S soccer? Apply uh, these things. It sounds like there's enough candidates already. I don't <laughs> think they need one more. Uh, I'm also curious about the, the process of writing this book. You've been a reporter, you've worked on deadline, had you written anything this long and this in depth uh, before, other than your senior thesis? No, I mean this is by far the longest thing I had written, and I think I was a little bit naive going into the 
uh, process, which was probably a good thing because I think <laughs> probably most first-time authors, if they had any idea of really just how difficult the task they're taking on is, you'd have a lot less first-time authors. But um, but it was again an, a, an amazing experience. I mean, both the experience of of researching the book and again, you know, traveling across West Africa and Qatar and Belgium and Spain was amazing. Um, you know, reading all about the science of, of youth scouting and what makes a player great was fascinating. And then just the process of writing the book and learning what it takes to kind of structure a, a coherent and compelling narrative for a reader. I, I was lucky enough to have an amazing editor at my publisher, Norton. And so uh, I benefit a lot from his expertise. Um, and so it's it's just been, you know, great life experience, great learning experience. And so um, I, I, I would I would tell any anybody out there who's wondering whether they should write a book that if you have an idea that you feel passionate about enough about and that, you know, you sort of can't stand the idea of a book not being written about that subject, then I would dive in and but do it with eyes wide open. That'd be harder than anything you've ever done. <laughs> Sound advice. Uh, well, thank you, Sebastian. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. No, thank you. It was a fun conversation. I appreciate you uh, reaching out. Sebastian Abbott is the author of The Away Game, due out this month. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe in iTunes. And if you're already listening on iTunes, please leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think.